Hello, listeners. Welcome to the next session. An advice podcast for game masters who are seeking help for their next game session. I'm Adam Johns. And I'm still Alyssa Johns. Yeah, you're still Alyssa. (laughs) Hey. Still how it's going. I have a question for you. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. In Smash Brothers. Okay. Which one? No, that doesn't matter. I know, <laughs> okay. I know it does matter for you, but for me it doesn't matter. Oh, okay. We really need to get Dom on this podcast because yeah. he's the Smash Bros he's guy. He's the Smash Bros guy. In Smash Bros. Yeah. When you're playing Kirby, who's my favorite, yeah. you can suck up other other players and get okay. their abilities. Yeah. When another player is playing as Kirby, what do you get? When you suck up Kirby? When you suck up a Kirby. Is it like Kirbyception? No. You do you don't, get extra suckage power? You don't You don't get anything. Do I suck more? No. <laughs> you super, super suck? I'm the super sucker. <laughs> Actually, it'd be great because Kirby could wear like a little Kirby hat, which right. would be like hilarious. But the other color. Right. Because like I could be monochrome Kirby and I could suck up green Kirby and suddenly have a little green hat or green glasses. or right. That'd be fun. Green shoes. Yeah, it doesn't do any of those. I know. Yeah. So. You just. You just um, plop the person out and it doesn't do anything. That's uh, BS. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I agree, actually. <laughs> I think if we're really going to get deep into Kirby's powers, why can't Kirby have some Kirby Kirby powers on top of normal Kirby powers? Yeah, you want some Kirby powers? I yeah. got you some Kirby powers so Yo- you can Kirby while you Kirby. Yo, dog, I heard you like Kirby. <laughs> <laughs> I got you some Kirby so you can Kirby while you Kirby. Um, or maybe, maybe Kirby's um, swords should get bigger. Uh, I guess so, or like the hammer or something. Yeah. I do I do kind of like the idea... Bigger rock. A giant rock. So when you float, float, float rock, it's a bigger it's rock. It's a bigger rock. It's like two rocks in one. Yeah. I think the goal is not to, like, make Kirby super powerful for absorbing another Kirby. I think it's just to, like, give you, like, another option for an ability. I mean, why Why? Why not? Kirby's the best. Sure. I guess I'm, I'm just saying, like, like the in the, in the gameplay, it seems like the goal is... To give Kirby like some versatile options, depending on what Kirby's fighting. Against. I mean, Kirby is definitely the most versatile. Let's just say it. I, I think Kirby's just your favorite. Nope, most versatile, best character. Float, 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 rock. That's what I know is the down B. Yeah. In fact, oh, this I is only, not a tournament. No. In fact, I only <laughs> really know Kirby's down B move. I don't know any other moves, and it's apparent when I end up trying to save myself off the edge of the map, and I down B. <laughs> And then I rock all the way to my death. Yeah. You rock it to I, your death? Yep. Yeah. Rock it like a hurricane. All right. <laughs> Let's move on. Well, actually, no, this made me think because I think it'd be really cool to have a um, a character that, like, absorbs bad guy abilities in, like, D&D. Oh. Oh. Where, like, um, you have your own abilities, but, like, one of your abilities is to, like, uh, take the abilities from somebody else. Like, um parasite from the dc comics or you want to vampire someone yeah yeah but for good but 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 i want to vampire their abilities away this reminds me of that graphic novel you used to read called chew it it does it does remind me where one of the bad guys was was kind of a vampire and he would sharpen his teeth and he could steal other people's abilities right by drinking their blood yeah and and the uh but i like the idea that you don't take away their ability you just copy it right so I think that could be kind of a cool thing, like you run up to the dragon and now you have a breath weapon too. Or that or would be so like, broken. I mean, you know, it'd be it'd be kind of broken, but like it'd be just like Kirby's ability, where it's like it's not crazy, it's not as powerful as the dragon's ability, right? But like, well, Kirby's ability goes away, and he can right. Only I, have I one imagine at this time. would be the case. This only you know it only lasts a minute or something. Oh, okay. It'd be a, like a fun home, and you can only have one at a time. Right. Okay. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm so basically, it. it's it's useful. Like, use it right at the beginning of combat, and now you've got like one extra cool ability that changes every combat. What if it's their legendary? Well, their action. legendary action that'd yeah. be cool. Yeah. Woo! Now I have a legendary action. Yeah, it's... but my legendary action is just that I pick my nose on on outside of my. Oh, that order. sucks. <laughs> my legendary action is I summon Jack Black. What? That is legendary. <laughs> legendary. <laughs> All right. Can my legendary action that I summon Neil Patrick Harris? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <Legendary>. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here we go. Next session help. This oh, yeah, one comes. Actually do a we have to do a podcast. <laughs> this one comes from Cade Mura. Cade Cade Mura. Cade 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 Mura. Mura. All right. Cade Mura. Cade. Sounds like hey dude. <laughs> hey dude. Uh, my players have been collecting artifacts around the world they live in, but without any idea that combining those artifacts could bring down the apocalypse. In parentheses, they say, yes, I know, that's not very original. It's my first campaign. Aw, oh, that hey, is original. Hey, hey, no, no, no worries, Katie. That's a great first campaign. Yeah, that's very original. that's epic. It's legendary. Um, I'm planning on sending... Jack Black says <laughs> Yeah, and so does Neil Patrick Harris. I'm planning on sending them assassins way too high level to wipe them down without killing them, simply making them unconscious and bringing them to an elder being that has been watching their actions. Is that okay to do that? I don't want my players to be frustrated because they didn't have any chance. Okay, so you want to do a fake total player knockout. Yeah. Is that okay? Fake TPK. Okay. So I'll say yes. Whoa. But... Yes, but. You have to be very careful about how you do this. You're supposed to say yes and. This is D&D. Uh, no. Yes I'm and, a, but. I, I'm a game master. I say yes, but all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Sometime we'll talk about the spectrum of yes on the podcast. We're going to get shirts that say yes, but. Yeah. <laughs> People are going to not wear those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll wear it. And that way I'm setting a good example. Um, the Okay. So, uh, yes, you can do a, a prescribed TPK. Um, but the challenge is, is that everything in Dungeons and Dragons is set up with trust in the game master. And so one of the things that sometimes happens is the game master has a really strict idea of what needs to happen for the storyline and then makes it seem like the players can have impact. And that's the place where players can get really frustrated because the players go, well, I thought my choices were going to matter here. And then the game master... That wasn't that wasn't ever actually the case, and this is this is a, a delicate balance that you're always walking as a game master, which is uh, I'm making a I'm making a story, and you guys are sort of going through my story. Hopefully, we're collaborating together on the story, but at the end of the day. Um, sometimes you just make a bunch of jokes about tacos and I have to push the story forward. <laughs> that sounds like every game we've ever had. Right. Um, and part of my responsibility as the game master is to make a good story. Now, you have trust in me, right, as, as players, that you say, oh, a game master is going to make a good story even if all I do is talk about taco jokes. Yeah. Um, the game master is still going to make a good story. Oh, man, especially if... The players have all watched like Critical Role, sure, yes, and all that, yeah. and they expect it. They right. expect an amazing story. That's that's hard. Which is which is always unfair. Remember that that you have an important job as a player as well. Um, but um, that aside, when you're trying to aim towards something like a, a prescribed TPK, there are a couple of recommendations that I can make. The first is ultimately know your players. Um, 
if you know you have a group of players who are going to get frustrated very easily when when uh, when you're fudging dice rolls or when they come up against a bad guy who's clearly too hard, you know, set them up for success. Let them know things early on. And that's going to be my, my first kind of bit of advice for how to do this, which is don't make it a combat. Yeah. Make it a cutscene. Set it up in advance. Right. Make it very clear to the players. They jump right in. Before they even roll initiative, turn to them and say, um, you're not going to win this fight. This fight is going to end with you being all knocked out. But you have some say in what that looks like. So now you get to give them the box that they get to play around in. This is the chance to use all your abilities. This is like, like just go for it. Right. You get to have, you know, at, at the end of this, the storyline dictates here's what's going to happen next. Um, you guys can't control that part. That's going to happen no matter what. But you get to have... You know, an epic battle against this guy before he knocks you out. Or you get to, like, blow all your abilities. Or you get to trip on a rock and slam your head into a wall and be knocked out. The choice is yours. Mm -hmm. Um, And now the players have some opportunity, right? Now they can go, okay, well, we know we're going to get knocked out, not killed. We're just going to get knocked out, and that's going to move the story forward. So what do I want that to look like? How do I want to be knocked out? What do I want that to be for my character? I can make it goofy. I can make it epic. I can make it whatever I want it to be, so long as it ends in the same place. Yeah. And and then you can you can make it a combat. You can roll dice. You can do all those things if your players want to want to roll that out, or you can make it just a cutscene. But now the players know exactly what's going to happen at the end of the whole thing, so there's no surprise there. Right. Now sometimes the surprise is what you want as a game master, and I get that. Um, the challenge is is that sometimes your surprise is a is a fun surprise uh, from your perspective and is a mean surprise from the from the player's perspective, right? It's somebody's birthday and you go, oh, I've got this great idea. I'm gonna scream happy birthday and then shove a cake in their face. Oh, right. And that's maybe fun. Some people might laugh and go, wow, that was a great prank. And other people might be like, I'm wearing my really good shirt and you just ruined it. And no one else gets cake. And no one else gets cake. So the important thing to keep in mind is that what's fun to you, the, the, the big surprise moment, the big reveal, is not always fun for your players the same way. Um, now, that being said, there are some other options as well. And this is really dependent on the play, you knowing your players, right? You got to know their threshold. You got to know what they're, what they're going to find fun. Um, one option that I always really, that I like to do is I like the escalating battle as opposed to just one bad guy that is so strong that you that you can't uh, you can't you can't defeat them but an escalating battle is one where like you're fighting the strong bad guy and you beat him and then three more strong bad guys show up and you beat you beat them too but it's it's really tough and then five more strong bad guys show up and this is the escalating battle of that I have um, seen on Reddit yeah. Someone has said that they wanted to do kind of the same thing, a fake total player knockout. And what they did is they had everyone sitting around a campfire, and uh, there were bugs around, and they kept getting bitten. And right before you guys fell asleep, a lot of you felt a bug bug bite on your neck, and you kind of swatted it away. And everyone goes to sleep. And it turns out those were actually poison darts, very mm. thin, small poison darts, and uh, they had all been drugged in the night. Okay, that's so not it was bad. A surprise. It's, yeah, it's a surprise, but it's a story-based one. Yeah, and they, there was nothing they could do about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that that actually can be a really good way too. You can avoid the combat altogether, right? Right. It's not a it's not a bad guy that that shows up. I've also done you know all 
all of you fall asleep. One of you is on watch. The one who is on watch uh, succeeds on their on their spot check or whatever, and they notice somebody coming out from the woods who uh, casts a sleep spell on them before they ever have a chance to do anything about it. And Ugh. now, and now everybody wakes up in a dungeon. Ugh. So like like there's you know it's once again sort of forced through, but but it's like um, you know all of you were asleep, and then somebody casts use magic or use poison or something like that to keep you asleep, and now you're you're waking up and you're You've been knocked out, and you, you're in a dungeon. So uh, I think those are a great way to go. I've had traps that fail automatically. There's there's no way through this trap room. You you have to lose this trap room because there's no solution. Um, but all of them are really dependent on any time you're going to make it seem like the players could have success, then you need to, you need to provide either clarity that success is not actually possible or you need to really balance what you know from your players knowing that they're going to get really upset they're going to get really really frustrated that they just spent an hour trying to find solutions for something and that's my other kind of bit of advice for this even if you do put them in combat and you give them a couple of rounds of combat even if you do like a you know escalating bad guy or something like that the advice that I have for you is, however long you usually take on a combat, this should be a third of that. Yeah. This should be way shorter because you don't want to spend an hour and a half of your three-hour game doing a combat that the players lose. And this shouldn't be the end of the session because you need to give the players... If it is the end of the session, you do it the cutscene way. If you're going to have like a real combat, you need to make sure that the players still have an opportunity to feel successful after they are forced to fail, forced to lose this, this situation. Um, and that's, that's a really important part. Remember that you're, as a storyteller, you are leaving your players on a high note. You're trying to leave them on a, on a note at the end of the game where they're like, yeah, I'm excited to come back. Not, well, everybody uh, basically died. Well, I'll see you guys next week. Right. Um, you got you to gotta leave them on, a, on that high note. And sometimes that means giving them a, an epic victory, in a place where you weren't intending to before, or it means fudging things a little bit to make sure they're successful because the rest of the session had been really hard. Or maybe they can pop a couple shots off as they're as they're doing the fake TPK that makes it so that there's a trail of blood from the bad guy. Or... Yeah, I, I do like um, that. Like this bad guy is undefeatable, but you can bust up his armor. You can you can like impact him in some way that may help you down the road mm-hmm. um i like that kind of thing as well like you you he has a bunch of henchmen and you you really messed up his henchmen uh even though uh you couldn't defeat him and you still got knocked out but all those are fewer henchmen you have to deal with later you know right. i'm keeping track of that those numbers and or or you see a glimpse of a map of where you're actually going right you get a hint right you get a hint of of what's going on due to your performance. Yeah. Um, there's an old school uh, uh, set of things called skill challenges that are from 4th edition. Uh, once again, one of the great things that 4th edition gave us. Um, and skill challenges uh, are all based around the idea that the outcome at the end is basically always the same. You know, 
you're sailing the ship through the storm or whatever, you always make it through the storm. But the difference in your successes determines, is your ship wholly intact or is it all beat up? Um, you know, did you lose a bunch of hit points along the way? Or a bunch of rations. Or a bunch of rations. Did you discover some important new information or did you fail to do so? So, like, um, you can treat that this somewhat, somewhat the same way. The outcome is the same, but... You did really well in the combat. You guys beat up a whole bunch of guys, so you wind up with a bunch of extra experience. You get some extra information that's important for the plot line. You um, you eliminate some bad guys you don't have to fight later, like allowing for variable levels of success uh, within the the confines of of this prescribed failure. Yeah. Cool. Let's go on to our next question. This next question comes from Chick for Three. Thanks, Kadumir. This next one comes from Tick for Three. Tick for Three. For Three. For Three. Tick for Three says, So my players have a few run-ins with a being I call the Potion Salesman. He likes to show up and offer the players deals for a price. Between two meetings, our rogue, who is terrified of dying, got married. So the potion salesman offered him a deal. Give me 50% of your wife's lifespan, and I will give you another chance at life if you die. Reincarnation will be cast automatically. He hid it from the entire party, so they don't know what he did. But I want to find a way to throw consequences in his face, so I appeal to you. Uh, note, the reincarnation cast is way more valuable in my campaign because resurrection spells normally aren't a thing. If you fail three death saves, you are most likely dead unless you can find a doctor fast enough who can bring you back to life. And he can make the deal because his wedding vows specifically had both of them say, what is mine is yours. So this, that's so messed up. This is so messed up. Okay, so I have to assume that the wife, so the, the player got married? So the yeah the rogue got married, and the potion salesman offered a deal saying, "Give me fifty percent of your wife's lifespan, and I'll give you another. I'll give you reincarnation automatically, like you know, like a fairy in Zelda." Yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to figure out whether or not the wife is a character in the game. I think that I don't think the wife is a character. It okay. sounds to me the wife is is a part of his backstory, like an NPC. Um. Okay. 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 Uh, if the wife is an NPC, then you've got a lot you can play with here. It's actually way harder if the wife is actually a player. Yeah, if the wife is a player and you didn't tell them that... Right, is... this is sort of like a weird player versus player thing yeah, that that's is totally going messed on here. Up. But no, I, I think that the rogue got married in the game. Okay, okay. Let, let's let's assume that's the case. The, the rogue got married and the the wife is just is an NPC in the rogue's backstory. Yeah, but man, did she pick poorly because... That's right. mean. So so there's a lot of there's a lot of play here that I'd be really interested in in making sure that the story's coming together well. Like I would want to know whether or not the player's really utilizing the wife or is the wife just like a backstory prop, right? Right. Um like does the player it, talk about the the wife as a character, right? Do they Calling the wife a backstory prop is 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 a little hard for me. <laughs> uh, I mean that's that's your totally wife. fair. And, but but like it's it's a common thing, right? You know, somebody goes like, oh, "I'm trying to avenge my parents who uh, who were killed by the 
um, by the big bad guy or whatever. Right, or I have a little sister in the game. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Um, I understand. It just, it's, it sounds terrible. It does sound terrible. When you say it this way. And, and functionally, from, from a role-play perspective, you know, not everybody's in the same place as a role-player. Some people are, are brand new to role-playing. They're brand new to jumping in. And they're going to create, you know, a harrowing plot or whatever for their, for their character to belong in this campaign. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. But I also want to encourage them to flesh out their character and if they're going to be incorporating NPCs into their character's backstory I want to encourage them to flesh out those NPCs too. I want I want to force them to have to make those more realistic, more three-dimensional. They're not just a cardboard cutout of of a family member that exists in the backstory or or worse that's been following them around in the campaign the whole time and we just assume is like I don't know hiding in the corner in every combat yeah um uh which happens also all the time yes your your characters relationships are not pets right um and moreover they're not pets that apparently don't even require food water or attention um they 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 need that it, it benefits you. It benefits you as a player, and it benefits you for the as a game master. You utilize those uh, as knives sometimes, or carrots sometimes for right. for the player to, to kind of role play forward with their with their character. And apparently, this rogue is so afraid of dying that he's willing to give up fifty percent of his wife's lifespan. Okay, so that's that's sort of my question here, right? Um, I can see this. Being a cardboard prop in his in his backstory that is his wife, and he's like, oh yeah, whatever. I give up fifty percent of the character that I don't care about's lifespan. That's fine, uh, and that's you know, cruel from a from a story perspective. Um, but like, it's a it's a player opportunity to to gain a advantage, right? If it's right. a min maxing player who doesn't care about role play or backstory, then then it makes perfect sense. Right. And in which case, that wasn't the wouldn't wouldn't have been the offer that I would have made. Um, but uh, it could also be the other way. Could be a player who really understands the the sacrifice of that, and then like is really role playing their character. This is like their character really is so terrified of of death that they'd be will- willing to give up the thing they find most precious just to stop themselves from dying. And it means that their next life might not be with the wife. You know. Yes. So that's where I would play this in. So um, let's assume that it's a player who's, who's really role-playing, who's really digging into the backstory and who understands and is going to role-play out the sacrifice that's being made, in which case I would let the player die, be resurrected, and then have to watch his wife die because now her 50% of her lifespan is taken away. Oh, I see. Yeah, you're, I wouldn't... you're saying that she was 50% already towards dying right so like they don't take it away until he uses until it. he uses the resurrection gotcha which he might not know as a result of the and, deal right and might not need until he's in his 80s you know sure although like you don't know it's 50 percent of the wife's lifespan so it's possible she was going to die way earlier right and then she he lost he loses her early because now her 50 percent of the lifespan is taken away right which I think would be super interesting. Or maybe it takes half her body away. Yeah. I know it says lifespan, but I thought it that does might say be lifespan. A, that might be a fun twist. Yeah. I, it'd be it'd be hard to to role play that out. Yeah, maybe maybe I could I could maybe see that. Um, but it would be tough to to role play out the 
the consequences of that, I guess. Um, but I do like the idea that she could still be there to be like, why did you do this to me? Yeah. Um, I also really like uh, that maybe the potion seller shows up and he's like, oh, you got your resurrection. It's time for me to claim my my reward. And then he turns out to be super powerful. You can't stop him. Uh, and then you get to role play out, like the wife being like, what is he talking about? Yeah, what's going on? Yeah, which what which is way more harrowing, right? It's not just that you're watching your wife, your imagined wife die. Um, you're watching her be confused and betrayed. And that is a super interesting concept. And now you've got a lot of different directions you could go. The player could go rescue the wife from some horrible afterlife thing. Or you could have the wife turn into like a lich or something like that. Like some some bad guy that now wants, seeks revenge on the player for the choices that they made. I mean, if you want to give this player a way to be heroic after this, this big... Uh, decision Mm -hmm. you could have him the potion seller lock up the wife for the rest of her life oh interesting i'm gonna slowly take her lifespan well yeah it's like i you you have given me 50 percent of your wife's lifespan um i can't do anything with that but i can take your wife for the rest of her life she's already lived half a life Mm. you know what i mean yeah, I think that is a little bit Rumpelstiltskin, right? Well, totally, but um, it, it means yeah, yeah. that now the player has a chance to rescue her and has not caused her to die early, just caused yeah. her to be imprisoned. Yeah, yeah, uh, and and you could still play something like he's you know e- using up her life force or something with his magic or something. Totally, like that. totally. Just doing it slowly over time. Um, that's not bad. And then, and then, like you, you're pretty immediately turning this potion seller into like a distinct bad guy, totally. as opposed to just like a merchant who was opportunistic, right? Yeah. Um, now it seems a little more like he he was angling for this all along, kind of thing, which you know maybe is a, is a good way to play it. Uh, yes, take take a page out of the adventure zone and have the potion seller clone the wife. Right. Sure. Yeah. She's yeah. a clone, so she has a half life. Right. And uh, suddenly he gets he gets the the wife. Sure. Yeah. I mean that's a, that's an interesting. It's a twist. Yeah. Yeah. I think th- I think there's definitely some opportunities here. Now the one thing that I would do is if it's a player that's doing doing this mechanically just for like whatever. My wife is a cardboard prop in the background, and I just want to not die right away. Then I would start making the wife actually play a role. Yeah. I would I would force the player to like. Okay, your wife is now going to be a part of this. Your mm-hmm. wife is going to be showing up all the time, and and you're going to be having conversations with her, and and like this is going to be like an ongoing thing, and your choices are going to matter here because now you've given, you've you've made a part of your backstory more important mechanically to your character, and I'm going to make part of that backstory more important to you personally. Suddenly, you have kids, and the wife is now dead before. Uh, and you have to raise the kid by yourself. Sure. Um, or, or uh, uh, you know, even just having role play scenes. Like if this was a cardboard prop in the background, now you start having role play scenes where you actually have to role play with your, your wife when you never had to do that before. Right. Um, it's worthwhile to point out that, like, when I have a player who's really mechanical and, and doesn't build a lot into their backstory, I don't make them make backstory sacrifices and and i i don't use those as the the props to motivate them forward because that's not what they're interested in 
Instead, I use mechanics as a as a prop to motivate them forward, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I say, oh, if you want to have this thing, then you're going to have to, like, lose one hand, and now you can't take bonus actions. Um, or, or um, you know, you're going to have this curse that, that gives you bane all the time or something like that. Like, very mechanical consequences for the choices that they make. But um, I am all for encouraging a player who is really uh, min-maxing to role-play more um, and use this as, a, as an avenue to, to help encourage that role-play. So, so all, more, more power to you if that's what you're doing. Trick, t- trick for t- three. T- tick, tick for, for three. three. Tick for three. Um, I do think it's a super interesting opportunity, though. Yeah, they've really handed you handed you something here with this ridiculous, terrible sacrifice. Don't sacrifice your wife, you guys. Right? Yeah, that's awful. That's <laughs> not. This is this has been your uh, PSA from from your wife, Alyssa Jones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I appreciate it. Because the very first episode, I said, "And I'm your wife." Yep. There you go. <laughs> let's, take a, let's take a break. I mean, you are. Let's okay, take, let's take a break. Take a break. We're back, and we're back. How was your break? Uh, it was great. Yeah. I took a shower. Oh, that sounds so nice. Yeah, cleaned myself. You know. Yeah. What'd you do? I built a shower. What? Did you shower in the shower I built? I just showered in the shower, the one that's right there. But I, I made a, I made a new shower. I mean, did it have gold bars? I, I, you like know, a gold soap tray. Well, I mean, I thought. It did, but maybe not. Well, the one I built doesn't have that. That's, that would be crazy expensive. Who builds gold soap trays? It's ridiculous. No, it was, um, it was really uh, not well put together. <laughs> I think you would have noticed. Are you trying to tell me that you built me a golden shower? Because that's terrible. That is that's pretty terrible. Don't sacrifice your wife. Guys. Don't sacrifice your wife. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Uh, ask a GM, uh, friend hey, one, ask a GM. friend 135 asks, <laughs> friend 135 asks, how do you deal with material spell components? When one of your spellcasters is casting a spell that has material components, do you allow them to just use gold or do you make them buy the individual materials beforehand? I haven't run a higher level campaign before, so I haven't had much experience in this area of the game. Any advice is appreciated. Well, I just assume they have everything. I guess I'm lazy. <laughs> there, there are so there are high level spells. Um, I don't know if we've talked that much about this in the podcast. There are high level spells that require actual specific materials, right? So most of the time, the spells list like you need a twig from a holly tree or something like that. You right? need a bit of a rock chip. Yeah, in, like their in, last one. In general, and actually, I think in fifth edition, if you have a wand or an attuned item, you can ignore the material components of of spells. Um, so if you have a casting focus, you can choose to use that instead of spell materials, except in the case of valuable spell materials. So sometimes a spell will say a gem worth 50 gold, um, or a golden idol worth a hundred gold. And in those cases, it'll always give you the value of it because that's an important part of the, the spell component. And it will say you ha- it, what the specific item is. Now, personally, 
most of the time I don't care whether or not you you do that. And in fact, unless we're really getting nitty gritty, um, I I generally don't care even to make you use the gold cost for the spell. But there are a few spells that are really powerful, and they're the gold cost is intended to be a an extra barrier. Barrier to entry. Yeah. Um, an extra reason why you can't just be like, yeah, I just cast this. I cast this spell again. I cast it ten times. Whatever. It, yeah, it's got it's got to be important. Right. Um, and especially spells like Resurrection, um, which which has a, a pretty high cost to it. Um, or, or some really high level spells, like ninth level spells and th- things like that, that may have like an additional material component that's you know 10,000 gold or 100,000 gold or something like that. And in those cases, I do want to make sure I'm, I'm giving a restriction for those. Well, I like the idea that they already have it. Like you, you guys are coming into this D&D session. They're like, oh, man, I can now do this one spell with this material component. I'm going to say, yeah, you have it. However, once you use it, I'm going to make you go find it again. Um, so you can cast it once, essentially. That's that's pretty good. I think the, the biggest thing that I would say is if I am going to restrict you from casting a spell, I need to give you all of the preparation ahead of time to let you know that I'm going to restrict you from casting a spell. So in other words, I, I don't think it's bad to say like, oh, you want to cast True Resurrection, you need this thing worth 25,000 gold. Um, but because I don't make you look for material components specifically for all of your other spells, right. I'm not going to spring that on you when we're in the middle of the dungeon. And you're trying to use your And you're your trying to spell. use your, your cool new spell, True Resurrection. Um, I would make it super clear to you before you leave the town that like, hey, just so you know, if you want to use that cool new True Resurrection spell, you're going to need to buy the thing that's 25,000 gold now. Um, one, because I don't want you to like spend time preparing it in your spellbook and then just be like, well, that was a waste right. of, a, of a you know prepared spell, apparently that I'm not allowed to cast, but I didn't know it. And also, because why would the ga- why would the player assume if I ignore all the other spell components that I'm not gonna that I'm gonna make them do this one spell component that they that they right. need to include? And and I can see good reason for it. I can completely understand why a game master chooses to, to do that, and I think I would too. But I would also make it really, really clear to a player ahead of time to say, oh, okay, uh, you can totally use that spell, but you have to go and purchase that material ahead of time. Yeah. Um, I like the idea that, that spellcasters have like those cloaks with all the mini pockets, well, and they're like, well, here's a little bit of rock, and here's some graveyard dirt, and here's a, what was another one? Like a like powdered fine pigment pigment of red, blue, or yellow. Sure. You yeah, know, for you when go. I want to cast different colors. Right. And here, <laughs> I, I I do like that idea. And some people have talked about like wanting to have a campaign where they they actually keep track of all these these things. And I do think that's a super interesting campaign. When I was in college, I had a a, a friend who wanted to play a survivalist D and D campaign, where there was magic, but it was super rare. You had to go collect any material you wanted to use for your spells yourself. So, like, you, there weren't magic shops where you could go buy these materials. You had to, like, go out into the woods and, like... Forage. Forage for them. Um, and all of the the other classes had to do the same thing. Like, they couldn't really buy weapons and stuff like that. They had to make everything themselves. They had to forage for everything themselves. Um, and, uh, 
Not my kind of game. Yeah, not my kind of game to run or to play. Right. Uh, requires a lot of tracking of fiddly things and, and stuff like that. But I can totally see that being a fun campaign to play. Um, especially if you're the kind of person who wants to to keep track of all those pieces and and talk about you know all all the specific pieces of crafting that you're doing and and all those things. That kind of reminds me of in uh, Link: Breath of the Wild. I got like all the gear. I did all the shrines. I thought I thought I did all the shrines. Um, you know, got all beefed up, and I thought, okay, whew, I'm finally ready to go defeat Ganon. Mm-hmm. I'm so ready. Wait a minute. There's a little area off to the off to the east that I haven't been to, and then suddenly I end up on Eventide Island, where they take everything away from you, and you're you're naked and afraid on an island, and you have to kill all these bad guys to do this last shrine. Oh, I don't remember that. It was brutal. Yeah. And really cool, but really brutal because yeah. suddenly I was like, I have everything, woohoo! Uh, oh no, I don't. Yeah, it was like the Trials of the Sword. Yeah, which yeah, yeah. I haven't done yet. Um, they're hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that if I was going to do Trials of the Sword, I'd have to replay the game to remember the like muscle memory oh, yeah, of how to, yeah, how to sword fight. And you really got to use bombs very effectively. Yeah, exactly. Um, so so I would say... Friend, um, friend 135. I would say Friend friend 135, uh, who I like way better than Friend 136. Um, Whoa. I mean... You mean... It's a big gap. Between 135 and 136. I'm partial to friend 133 myself. I Yeah, I mean, you know, they're numbered in order of closeness. <laughs> so friend 1 is not your closest friend? Friend 1 is my closest friend. Okay, but you like friend 135 better than friend 136? Oh, I see. Never yeah. mind. Yeah. I figured there it. There you go. Math. <laughs> Coming together. Am I, um, am I friend 1? <laughs> it's a trick question. Oh, yes. it's a trick question. Let's move on. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh I, I would say um, any choice is okay here. Uh, it's it's your choice here, friend one thirty five. You can choose whether or not you want to charge for you know charge the players for just gold. Um, you can choose whether or not you want them to prep those items ahead of time. The most important piece is be clear with your players about it, um, so that you're not catching them suddenly off guard. Um, and you can even make those changes so long as you do so in a place where the players can now take the time to prep and and take the time to to be aware of of those pieces. I have some players that love having spells with complicated pieces and they love ke- keeping track of complicated pieces. I have players that like want to keep track of every arrow their bow character fires. Um, and that's okay. I, I don't mind that. And personally, as a game master, it's not my style. But I don't mind playing in a game or even game mastering a game that that forces players to keep track of those things. And I don't mind every time they cast a spell being like, do you have your components? Yeah. Um, I can ask that question. That's not that much effort for me. I'm not going to keep track of the components. I'm just going to assume the honor system that they're doing a good job with it if that's the kind of game that they want to play. Right. Um, So make whichever choice you'd like. Play, you know, play the game you want to play. Uh, yeah. Or GM the game that you want to play. If you just want to like ignore the components altogether, ah, play that game. That's what I do. Um, if you want to like just be like, cool, you know, you can cast that spell whenever you want. I'll just assume you have the component for it, but you always have to give up the thirty-five gold necessary for it. Then play that game. That's that's an alright way to play too. Yeah. Speaking of spells with materials, spells with materials. Let's like, move on to use that spell. Use that spell. Uh, so, thank you. <laughs> so this spell is called Dawn. Dawn? Dawn. Uh-huh. 
Uh, not, it's a cleaning spell. It's not D O N. It's D A W N. Okay. It's not the. It's not the dawn. It's not the dawn. It's just dawn. Okay. It's not a. It's. <laughs> it's not like a a organized crime spell. No. Okay. Uh, it's a spell from Xanathar's Guide to Everything. It's an evocation, level five, casting time one action, range sixty feet. Components. Here we go. V, S, and M, a sunburst pendant worth at least 100 gold pieces. What? That's just what we were just talking about. <laughs> Segway. Oh, nicely selected. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know that you were going to talk about gold piece and spells. That was literally what the last question was. I know, but it didn't mention anything about the, the, the gold. Anyway, it was good. Oh, okay. So duration, concentration up to a minute. Here's what it says. The light of dawn shines down on a location you specify within range. Until the spell ends, a 30-foot radius, 50-foot high cylinder of bright light glimmers there. This light is sunlight. When the cylinder appears, each creature in it must make a constitution saving throw, taking 4d10 radiant damage on a failed save, or half as much on a successful one. A creature must also make this saving throw whenever it ends its turn in the cylinder. If you're within 60 feet of the cylinder, you can move it up to 60 feet as a bonus action on your turn. This is from page 153 on Santa Thur's Guide to Everything. Cool. It's this is a cool spell. powerful. Yeah. Not only is it powerful, it hits everybody. And everybody has to make the saving throw when it ends their turn in the cylinder. Like, this is some powerful sunlight. Yeah. When the cylinder appears, each creature in it makes a constitution saving throw or take 4d10 radiant damage. And then a creature must also make the saving throw whenever it ends its turn in the cylinder. Interesting. Yeah. So this is like sunlight, everyone scatter. It's like a cockroach spell. It's also 60 feet wide. Yeah. And 40 feet high. No, it's 30 feet radiant. Oh, you're right. 60 feet wide. Yeah. And 30 foot high. It's a huge area. Huge. And you can move it. Yeah. Um, it is interesting that it's each creature. So it includes yourself and yeah. your teammates. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like that it's actual sunlight. That actually plays a, a really important role in the game. There are creatures that are like vulnerable or have disadvantage in actual sunlight, especially like a lot of the underdark creatures. Mm-hmm. Um, like uh, uh, drow uh, have this sometimes and and uh, uh, some other underdark creatures, Sphere of Neblin or, or Duragar, sometimes have like vulnerability to sunlight where they have disadvantage on their attacks and checks. And radiant damage too. Right. Um, radiant damage is great against undead. This is a good spell. Yeah, they had they it's nice that they specified this light is sunlight. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing. It's sunlight. It's damaging powerful sunlight. Could I still hold up a shade item like an umbrella or a shield or like like what are we talking here? If I know I'm about to cast it, can I can I shadow myself? Um, I, I mean, I would say no. I I would say that that the kind of description of the spell is basically like a beam of light so powerful that it burns you. Okay, so would it burn my umbrella? Um, like what are we talking here mechanically? It's it is doing radiant damage. So radiant, radiant damage is not the same thing as, like, fire damage. If this was, like, a big magnifying glass pointing pointing fiery light at you... That's exactly what I was imagining. Um, then, I, and it said fire damage, then I might say, yeah, it burns up your umbrella. Or you can block it. You know, you've, you've got a big shield or something. You create enough shade and you can block it. Um, but because it's radiant damage, I have to assume that this is effectively, like, holy light. 
in, in which case, I wouldn't say that you can, like, block holy light because you got an umbrella. Um, unless you've got, like, an anti-holy umbrella or something like I that. I mean, I am the one casting the spell. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I would still say, like, I think this is, like, indiscriminate holy beam of light. Um, plus, given the amount of damage of it, I, I would kind of assume that this is, like, a, like, this is, like, a pillar of, of destruction coming down like your umbrella is not going to cut it this is gandalf on the hill look for me my coming I, at I, the light of whatever i was thinking this is like uh this is like the magnifying glass but it's like the magnifying glass from a you know you're an ant and this is a giant magnifying glass and so it's just a pillar of flame and and destruction carving a, a path towards you so i i think like putting up a shield not not gonna change the pillar of flame that's coming your way. Well, it's nice that you can specify a location within range, and the range is 60 feet. So you better put it 60 feet away from you, or you're going to be in it? Yeah, I guess you could... The The edge of the circle would reach 90 feet out, because you, it's centered on a point within range. It's a 30-foot radius, and you can put it 60 feet away from you. So um, you would be 30 feet... If you're at its maximum range, you would be 30 feet away from the edge of the of the circle. And it would extend another 30 feet past the 60-foot range. So it'd be 90 feet. It's and really, really huge area. And you can concentrate on it up to a minute. Yeah. Dang, son. Um, I do think there's some interesting use for for something like this in, like, a, a cave to, like, block an entrance or something like that. Oh, yeah. And because the full distance is 60 feet, it's it's tough for anybody to make it all the way through. Do you think it could go through walls? Uh, interesting question. Because, like, if I'm in a cave and there's rooms on either side, yeah, yeah, you know, and I cast it in the middle of that room, will it extend the cylinder all the way through the walls? I'd probably say you have to keep the center point in your range of vision. Yeah, you have to be able to see the center point. Um, but aside from that, yeah, I'd probably say it would it would extend through walls personally because it seems like it's coming from above, but but magically able to pierce, you know ground and yeah because if i'm inside of a like cave that. i'm gonna i'm gonna center it inside the cave it's not like it's gonna be casted from right. above and it's right, up right. on the it ground doesn't, it doesn't you know there are actually druid spells like uh uh like lightning spells and stuff like that that require sight of the sky and this doesn't specify that right. so so i would assume that this is that that it would go through walls that it it's would. like pikachu and smash bros where i can do the call down the lightning and it hits the platform above me right yeah, bringing it back to Smash Bros. Yeah, yeah, for the Druid spells, but the, not for this one. Yeah. I think this one, this one actually works, uh, even if you're even if you're inside somewhere, or underground somewhere. Or something. I like this idea. I like this idea of like threatening. She'll, she'll call the dawn. Yeah. Don't you piss her off. Um, yeah, I I also like um, this spell. Actually, doesn't specify that it dispels magical darkness, but it does say that it is sunlight. Right. Um, but there's another spell. It's a third level spell called Daylight that specifically says that if it overlaps with magical darkness, it instantly dispels the magical darkness. So how would this work on top of magical darkness? Like I cast Dawn. I don't know. Um, uh, because Daylight specifically says it dispels magical darkness, I'd probably rule that magical darkness would protect you from this spell. Ooh. Okay. I have a shield made of magical darkness. There you go. Bam. Um, that 
sort of makes sense. It makes sense. <laughs> Just go with it. Um, how about you have a shield that allows you to, to trigger the darkness spell on top of yourself? Okay. All right. Um, however... Because Daylight is a lower level spell that just creates day-like light. And this says specifically this light is sunlight. I don't know. No. You know what? I think I would still... I, I would let the magical darkness persist. And I would let it protect you from the damage of the spell. That's a good question. We should ask our listeners. Can Dawn... Can the spell Dawn... Does it dispel magical darkness or not? It doesn't say it does. But the spell Daylight does say it dispels magical darkness. Do you think this spell, would you rule that this spell dispels magical darkness? And, moreover, if it doesn't dispel magical darkness, does magical darkness protect you from the spell? Same with Flame Strike. Um, I could see that, but at least this one says specifically that it's it is this light is sunlight. Yeah. This person on Reddit says, because the description on daylight which explicitly mentions dispelling magical darkness. If it doesn't say that, it doesn't do that. I might argue that. But if I'm conceptualizing why the daylight spell dispels magical darkness, is that just because um, it's a part of the spell? Or is it does it dispel magical darkness because like it's part of the power of the of the real sun that you're bringing in there, in but, which case this one should also dispel. But the part of magical darkness. darkness is a creature with dark vision can't see through it, and non-magical light can't illuminate it. Correct. Non-magical light. But that this is, is very clearly magical but this, light. But this Except is that it's sunlight. Sunlight and magical light. And magical light. But daylight is also kind of described the same way. It's also very clearly a magical light. Um, in fact, the light spell is a magical light, and that's not supposed to work in darkness at all. Right. This is so interesting. Hmm. Conundrum. Yeah. I like it. I like conundrums. Um, I'd play it by ear. At the end of the day, with whatever the, the choices the, the players made, I might let the darkness succeed in protecting against this spell. I might uh, let the spell dispel the darkness. I'd probably remember what ruling I, I made on this so right. that it could be um, used that way in the future. But uh, um, given the situation, I'd probably go... Uh, okay, yes. And at the end of the day, if you do allow it to dispel magical darkness, it's a level 5 spell. Like, your player could use the daylight spell to dispel right. that magical darkness, and that's a level 3 spell, um, and they have more slots for it and more access to it. So if they're using this spell to dispel magical darkness, more power to them. Awesome. They're, they're using a more powerful spell to dispel a magical darkness. And if the magical darkness protects against it, then you've got a really interesting play off yeah. of of a, this spell and a protection spell. Okay, I'm going to go with it doesn't dispel magical darkness because it's the light of dawn. It's not the daylight. It's the it's the sunrise, essentially. Mm-hmm. That's how okay. I'm going to rule it in my head, even though it does say it's sunlight, and that I'm now going to make a shield that triggers darkness. So you do think that the darkness also protects you from the spell? Yes, yeah. I do. Cool. That's my ruling, but All there right. you go. Yeah, there you go. Um, Ruling from the Game Master. Ruling from a Game Master. Yeah. (laughs) From the other Game Master. From the other Game Master. All right. Hey, thanks for listening. Yeah, that brings us to the end. Thank you so much for wasting another perfectly good hour with us. You know, it wasn't wasted. You learned some stuff. I learned learned some some stuff. stuff. I learned some stuff. I learned that Kirby can't swallow Kirby and get benefits for it. I mean, he can. It just doesn't benefit him. It just him. doesn't benefit him. Yeah. That stinks. Yeah. Um, you can submit your own questions on nextsessionpodcast.com, and you can also find us 
um, other places. Like, on Twitter and Facebook. What? At The Next Session. Or Instagram at Next Session Podcast. Um, so with that, I'm Adam Johns. And I'm Alyssa Johns. And tune in next time and we will help you prep for your next session. Bye. Bye.